to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. All right. Working? Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belabored Episode 190. It's time for our year-end roundup of the biggest labor stories of 2019. But first, the news. So Boris Johnson won the UK election and is wasting no time backing down on workers' rights in negotiations with the EU, backing off of his plan to raise the minimum wage, and even more ominously, laying out a plan to ban rail and transit unions from being able to strike. His plan laid out in the Queen's speech, which I'm not going to explain to you, is uh, would ensure minimum service levels, taking away the right of at least some workers to effectively withhold their labor. The National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers, or RMT, General Secretary, responded, quote, banning strikes and denying workers the basic human right to withdraw their labor has been the hallmark of hard-right authoritarian regimes throughout history. Instead of attacking rail workers fighting to defend safety and disabled access, any responsible government would be tackling the scandal of private profiteering on Britain's railways, which has reduced services to chaos. Of course, the Labor Party's plan involved renationalizing all of those rail services, which now has another probable five years to wait. Today, as we're recording this, the unions and their supporters, including Labour members of Parliament, rallied against the Johnson government and vowed to fight any such crackdown on unions. Of course, the Conservative Party have a long record of such crackdowns dating back to Margaret Thatcher's War on the Miners, which is a part of what made Labour's loss of seats across Britain's north last week so painful. To see traditional bastions of Labour support voting for the party that destroyed them was crushing. As the UK gears up for a likely again, five years of a Johnson administration and a likely hard Brexit, it is unions and community groups that are going to have to fight to defend the rights they retain and prevent the government from doing as much damage as it would like. Harvard graduate students have been out on an indefinite strike since the start of the month, agitating for fair pay, better health care coverage, and a stronger policy on sexual harassment on campus. The Harvard Graduate Students Union, with about 4,400 members, has been picketing on campus and getting support from undergraduates, alumni, and even members of Congress. The unrest at Harvard reflects the tension surrounding the entire graduate workers' movement, since the National Labor Relations Board recently proposed a new rule to roll back the collective bargaining rights of graduate students at private institutions, which the Obama administration upheld. Last week, I spoke with Ege Yemusa, a PhD student who is on the bargaining committee. She talked about what the union is hoping to accomplish with this unprecedented labor action. My name is Aguilla Mishak. I'm a third-year PhD student in the philosophy department at Harvard University, and I've been on strike since December 3rd. Um, I was supposed to be teaching and um, assisting with the final examinations of an introductory philosophy course here at Harvard, but after over a year of negotiations, we haven't been able to find any agreement on important issues like harassment and discrimination protections, including fair pay and including uh, affordable and comprehensive health care. So we decided to go on strike as a last resort, and we've been uh, on strike for over a week now. They did announce that they would come back to the table. Is that right? I mean, mm-hmm. did they suspend the talks and then decide to come back? Mm-hmm. So uh We walked off our jobs on December 3rd. We had met with them on December 2nd uh, for two and a half hours um, where the administration refused to schedule a new bargaining session. 
And after a week of the strike was um, disruptions to education, deliveries, trash collection, the interlibrary system uh, shutting down. After living through a week of that, they finally contacted us and said they would return to the table, but gave us a date on December 18 um, for three hours. So we continue to be on strike and we will be on strike until we get a fair contract. This is an indefinite strike um, and uh, we will continue to be strong until we win these basic rights and protections. What, what happens on December 18 uh, will give us a good sense of whether the administration is willing to um, reach a fair agreement. Right now we have many issues um, unsettled at the table because what we're seeing from the other side is just blanket refusals of basic rights and protections. The Harvard administration is refusing to give harassment and discrimination protections in our contract. This is a very basic right that all the other unionized workers on this campus have, and we haven't been able to get that. So striking we see as the only option to get these incredibly basic and urgent protections. That was Ege Yamusak with Harvard Graduate Students Union. So we'll talk more about the United Auto Workers later on today's show when we get to our year-end wrap-up. But for now, following the GM strike and the ongoing corruption scandal among the UAW's leadership, there's a growing movement among UAW members to reform in the way that union leadership is chosen. Friend of the show Chris Brooks at Labor Notes has a story noting that six locals, representing about 10,000 workers, locals 774 and 259 in New York, local 1853 in Tennessee, local 838 in Iowa, and local 167 in Michigan, plus the National Writers Union, which is local 1981, have passed resolutions to amend the union's constitution and give each member a vote in the selection of its top positions. Brooks writes, quote, a handful of large unions elect top officers by a one-member, one-vote system, including the steelworkers, machinists, and teamsters. But like many other big unions, the UAW relies on a convention delegate system. Locals are apportioned delegates based on their numbers of dues-paying members. Members elect their local delegates to the Constitutional Convention every four years. These delegates elect the International Executive Board, IEB, including the president. End quote. To trigger the convention that would be needed to amend the Constitution, 15 locals from at least five states, representing around 79,000 members, which is at least 20% of the union's membership, would be needed. Still, as Sean Crawford said on our GM strike episode recently, the GM strike's outcome, as well as the corruption cases, have made many UAW members consider the need for change in the union. Brooks writes, Quote, Since the days of UAW President Walter Ruther, the delegate system has been tightly controlled by the union's ruling administrative caucus. For seven decades, every president and almost every regional director has been a member of the administrative caucus, which maintains its power through an extensive patronage network. In exchange for political loyalty, union officials over the years have provided thousands of workers with jobs off the assembly line. If the union's IEB had included outspoken opponents of the ruling caucus, their oversight would have been a strong disincentive to the flagrant culture of corruption that took hold at the top of the UAW. It would also likely have made it visible sooner, end quote. Auto worker Ray Jensen told Brooks, if we're going to clean up the union, then the membership needs to have a voice in who we elect to represent us. And that will happen through one member, one vote. A lot of people dislike getting bossed around at work, having to take orders all day, being forced to stay late. But what if your boss decides to dictate your life even after you quit that job? 
For tens of millions of workers nationwide, and maybe even you, employers have imposed contractual restrictions on whom workers can work for after they quit. They're called non-compete agreements, and traditionally they've been used to restrict workers from moving from the company directly to a rival company in the same industry. They basically force them to avoid working for a competitor for a set period of time, often a full year. In theory, this is supposed to protect employers' trade secrets. In reality, these agreements are being pushed onto low-wage workers at places like Jimmy John's, the sandwich maker, seemingly primarily for the purpose of discouraging workers from leaving and penalizing them for quitting. You may have heard about non-competes because they're at the center of a number of major legal disputes involving low-wage or entry-level workers and bosses who try to prevent them from moving on to another job at a company that could be considered a rival of the former employer. Often this comes with better wages and working conditions, oddly enough. According to a new survey by the Economic Policy Institute, nearly half of responding companies across the country have at least some workers subjected to non-competes. Among the most common industries for businesses to have any workers with non-competes are business services, retail and wholesale trade, and even construction. And in contrast to the association with intellectual property and professional workers, EPI's survey found that even among workplaces where hourly wages range from just about $13 to $17, roughly 57% of employers use non-competes on at least some of the workforce. Other studies have found that not only do non-competes limit workers' mobility, but they also tend to depress wages by curtailing competition for workers among employers. I spoke with Heidi Sheralds, Senior Economist and Director of Policy at Economic Policy Institute, about the impact of non-competes on the overall economy. So non-compete agreements, they're, they're agreements that you have with your employer, which you may sign, say, on your first day of work, or they may be tucked into an employee handbook. Um, but, or in, in, in other ways, you have agreed to this non-compete agreement, which typically says you will not work at a related business, you will not take a job at a related business or start a job um, in a related business for a certain period of time. So it just basically says you can't work anywhere else that might compete with me. And the impact of that, I think, is, is usefully thought of as being twofold. So one thing is it has a negative impact on workers' wages. And I think that the sort of current conversation that's happening in the world about the tight unemployment rate boosting wages is is a useful backdrop to this because it's, it's the same logic. Like when the unemployment rate is low, your employer knows that you have good outside options. So they actually have to pay you decent wage increases to keep you or they'll or they'll they know you'll go to another job. So that's how a low unemployment rate raises workers' wages. The same thing happens in reverse with non-competes. It's your employer is saying, "Look, I am just declaring that you don't have outside options." And so it hurts workers' wages. And then the, another factor is it hurts the broader economy through hurting competition. So it just it means I can't find another go to another job where I might be more productive. If I have a non-compete, I'm locked into this job where for for whatever reason I might not be being as productive as I otherwise could. And it inhibits startups. So there's good evidence that non-competes actually reduce the startup rate, which is not surprising at all, because they say, you know, you can't work anywhere else, including you can't work at a place that you yourself are would would otherwise have started. Um, so it, it sort of hurts the dynamism 
the competition in the labor market that's good for productivity growth and good for overall strength of the economy. So it really does have these negative impacts. And I think both of those things are why proposals to ban non-competes are getting broad bipartisan support. Like those, it sort of covers the you're hurting workers, you're hurting the economy, you really are getting, um, you're seeing people on both sides of the aisle look at these these agreements and say they're just not good. They're not good for our workforce. They're not good for our economy. We need to do something about it. Why is it that, that you have to have a new law to cover these? Because it seems like this is anti-competitive activity. It should be covered by antitrust law or something. That is a good question. So it is not. They're perfectly legal now, um, but it's something that is that is being considered both through regulation that would just ban them. Um, and then it's also, it's interesting that you bring up the um, anti-competitive regulatory angle to this because the Federal Trade Commission is considering doing, sort of teeing things up to do a rulemaking in the future on on that would that would limit non-competes. Um, they're, for example, doing a hearing on non-competes in January. So they're definitely starting to think about this for that very reason. Like these instruments really do inhibit competition, and that's their job. So there is there is interest there too to do it. But it, they're currently legal. Some states have banned them, but federally they're currently legal, and you see they're in very very widespread use. I also spoke with a victim of a non-compete agreement, Stephanie Russell Kraft, who was prevented from taking a journalism job at Reuters in 2015 due to the non-compete that she signed when she was initially hired at Law360, her former employer. And at that time, she didn't really understand what the consequences were. That non-compete had sort of been around and some people knew about it. I didn't remember, you know, I, I didn't remember having signed it because it was something that they gave me on my first day and then never mentioned again. And like, I didn't even, I, don't, I didn't get a copy of it. So it's sort of just like, here do all this paperwork. And I was just so excited to have a job. I, you know, that's my mistake. I wasn't, I didn't think that that would be a thing that um, would later get in the way of my employment. And, you know, people had left Law 360 for some other publications that you could argue are competitors and nothing had happened. I think there were specific reasons that they were upset that I went to Reuters, but I was shocked and everyone was shocked. You know, all the, everyone who was still at Law 360 after I got fired from Reuters because of, non, of, of Law 360 sort of trying to enforce this contract. That was a catalyst for the Law 360 reporters unionizing, which they did like the following summer, but you know, things were sort of underway. Like that really kicked things off. There was always, you know, people had been grumbling about other things like story quotas and, and pay issues. But when that happened, I think everyone was so outraged that it really like lit a fire and, and yeah. But it's still happening in other places. That was Stephanie Russell Kraft, and before that, you heard Heidi Sheralds of EPI. Well, it's been a year. It's been a decade. It is about to be 2020, and I don't even know how I feel about that. Yeah. But we're, we're almost at 200 episodes, oh for God's God, sake. We're almost at 200 episodes, and we haven't even been going this whole decade. Yeah. So we thought for the end of the year, we'd spend a little time talking amongst ourselves about the good, the bad, and the really, really ugly this year. Um, so Michelle, start us off. We're going to start with uh, 
the day the government stopped, which was... <laughs> I uh, sometimes wish it would stop for longer. Yeah, but. right. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the government was only uh, AWOL from the from late December to early... Uh, to, to late January, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was one of the... Yeah, it was one of the longest government shutdowns in, uh, I believe, recent memory. And um, yeah. it caused a huge amount of disruption. Uh, and, uh, and we also saw some labor activism coming from segments of the federal government, which we're not used to yes. um, due to, uh, you know, the fact that uh, most forms of industrial action yeah. among federal workers is prohibited by law. So. Yeah, I mean, we, earlier in this episode, I mentioned Margaret Thatcher's war on the miners, and the corollary to that in the U.S., of course, was the Ronald Reagan's war on the air traffic controllers. And so it was particularly kind of sweet to me that the thing that ended up ending the government shutdown was air traffic controllers and flight attendants not going to work. Yes. And uh, when labor decided to uh, take hold of that choke point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, it was not, um, it was sort of the strike that wasn't a strike in the sense that it was sort of a mass official official strike. Right. right. Um, Which increasingly is a tactic that many workers have to resort to as their sort of legal rights Mm -hmm. to engage in work stoppages is increasingly constrained. And so, um, and of course, uh, this dovetails into one of our favorite interviewees of the year, Sarah Nelson. Yeah, who sort of burst onto the consciousness of the American public with a the resonant words, Mitch yeah. McConnell, can you can you hear us now? I'm oh my God, this. yeah, that was great. Um, but you know, but her speech um, accepting the Drum Major Institute Award, right, was electrifying, right? She called for a general strike. When was the last time you heard a labor leader say those words out loud? Um, right. They're scary words, right. but she said, you know, look, if they're gonna screw with us, we have power right. to shut things down. And, and it was monumental because it was a private sector union, mm-hmm, essentially, right. um, uh, being uh, sort of called to action by what was going on uh, with federal workers. And it was a moment of sort of private sector, public sector solidarity. Um, and we're increasingly seeing that, I think, in a lot of the um, sort of the, the strike wavelet or the, the strike wave that we've been seeing over mm-hmm. the past two years because yeah. it's been teachers at the forefront, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in many cases, I mean, we're used to public sector workers being very constrained in the type of labor right. actions they can undertake. Um, and in many cases, of course, the teachers, uh, you know, didn't care and they, they did it anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that was sort of, um, uh, that was kind of breaking the dam a little bit in terms of showing, uh, expanding the scope of what people thought was possible. Yeah, I think it's really important to note, too, that, you know, there there are some things that flight attendants in particular have in common with teachers, right? These are mostly women workforces that are responsible for the safety and well-being of others um, that, you know, in the case of flight attendants are doing it in a tin can flying 30,000 feet up in the air that, you know, every time I'm on a plane, which is too often, I'm sorry for my part in killing the planet, um, I just think that flight attendants are superheroes because I'm constantly terrified on planes. Uh, And they have to wrangle hundreds of constantly terrified and possibly drunk, annoying people stuck in a thing for hours right. and uncomfortable seats and, and all in, this stuff. in the interview with Belabored, I think, um, I mean, Sarah Nelson talked about, like, yeah, yeah, we all know we get the occasional jerk on the plane, yeah. right? But um, fundamentally, it's sort of like a test of, you know, uh, every airline worker's humanity, I mm-hmm. guess, when they're you know, 30,000 feet in the air and forced to deal with, like, sort of the best and the worst of, uh, of humankind. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the words emotional labor are probably overused these days. But, but that is the industry yeah. where that, you know, where the research that coined that term came from in Arlie Huxtall's book, The Managed Heart, right? It was a study of flight attendants. Right. Um, so Sarah Nelson. Teachers as well. Right? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. But like, right. So, so, you know, Sarah Nelson has become a rock star, which is all 
deserved, I think. And, you know, it, we it's, called it's it. a, right. It's a vision. She puts forward a vision of the labor movement that fights. And that's one we all want to see more of. Um, and now on to the less savory aspects of the federal government, which is uh, the one of my greatest labor hits for 2019 was uh, the NLRB just generally sucking. So the National Labor Relations Board, for uh, those of us who are familiar with private sector unionism, is mm-hmm. kind of the uh, federal body that oversees uh, labor rights in the private sector. Um, it, call, it sort of constructs a lot of the rules and um, creates a lot of the case law that guides how uh, unions and um, all workers, when engaging in so-called concerted activity, right, right. collective action, um, are, are um, uh, the, the rights that they have. Uh, right. And increasingly, the NLRB has come out with um, rulings that um, are rather labor-unfriendly, I would say. Some would even say <laughs> sort of hostile to the idea Hostile of, to the very idea of unions, Right. Perhaps? So we've seen decisions that um, the list includes uh, many, but um, a few of the greatest hits were curtailing the rights of um, workers to uh, picket at a venue that is not uh, the technical property of their employer, right, which uh, relates back to this idea of the fissured workplace, right? And many mm-hmm. of us work in places that don't technically belong to the employer that we are under, many right? Many of us work in places that aren't workplaces. Right. Yeah. Um, like my living room. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, allowing, and, you know, as we're seeing, you know, what is defined as work becoming increasingly diverse, uh, the NLRB is really constraining um, the ability of workers who are sort of Mm -hmm. non-conventional, you know, uh, 40-hour grind workers. um, Right, exactly. Sort of constraining their ability to organize. And so um, just recently they had a ruling that was uh, basically limiting access to email for workers who are engaging in uh, any potential organizing related activity and so if you think about the wave of tech worker organizing that we've Mm -hmm. seen over the last year I mean sort of limiting sort of the uh, means of electronic communications that workers have Mm -hmm. um, is uh, incredibly detrimental to workers for instance who are all telecommuting or they're all working on the cloud or something like that so yeah yeah if we've seen the way that that um, slack has been used in media worker organizing and tech worker organizing and things like that Um, and you know it's important I think we should say that the NLRB has not really been fit for purpose for um, a while. It's not like it was great under Obama. Right. Um, it's not like NLRB elections were easy to win. Yes. And it's not like the process doesn't have a million holes in it. It doesn't take forever to get unfair labor practice. Like right. it just it's it's been a mess for a while. Yeah. Right. But and at of this course, point, the NLRA is basically the hardest law ever to amend. And yeah. Which is you know hopefully well, under maybe under the next administration there might be some changes. But I'm working yeah. on an article on this right. subject. So um, but yeah, the the. Right. So the question of like what to do has been really interesting with when you know that the NLRB is just not on your side. We've seen, right, right, we've seen grad student unions, among others, pull their cases rather than have them heard by a obviously hostile labor board. Right. And, uh, you know, like a pro, the NLRB stepped in and decided to issue a rulemaking to take away the rights of grad students to organize. So um, they will find ways around this, even when the cases are, um, when uh, when groups aren't bringing forward unfair labor practice cases and things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the fact that many groups are pulling their cases also really signifies, you know, this idea that people are increasingly, like, not looking towards the NLRB mm-hmm. or any sort of federal body to really be the arbiter of workplace rights, and that yeah. sort of leaves this vacuum, right? Um, if yeah. we don't have these sort of legal instruments at our disposal, then what do workers do? Right, yeah. And it's a very interesting question, right, because what we have seen in that vacuum is we talked about Sarah Nelson calling for a general strike. We talked about sick outs. We talked about the teacher strike wave in many places where they don't have explicit collective bargaining rights or don't have the right to strike or, you know, maybe are banned from striking, Um, we're 
seeing more and more workers trying to figure out ways to organize outside of this framework because the framework is increasingly not working. And there's a strand of thought within the labor movement that the NLRB is kind of a useless constraint on many workers. Well, yeah, at this point, that's also a question, right? That, like, what does the sort of official collective bargaining model restrain? And, you know, I think these are interesting questions, too. If we look for some silver linings right now, it would be that, like, at the top of the Democratic polling numbers are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who we could probably expect both of, particularly Sanders, has already put forward some labor law reform proposals that are pretty good. Um, But we can expect both of them to think about labor law reform. Yeah. Um, And this is the first election probably that we've had, like, sort of labor at the forefront of many candidates' platforms. Yeah. And so while we're looking forward to 2020, which I'm not, um, it's an interesting question to sort of leave out there for our listeners. We'd love to hear from you. Like, what would it look like to rewrite labor law in a way that would actually be functional? Right. Um, what would it mean to do that? Right. And I think um, one of the issues that the NLRB has ruled on has been like, um, you know, what happens in uh, investigations around uh, workplace harassment. Does the employer have the right to um, sort of impose silence on workers by uh, requiring so-called confidentiality from workers? And so, in the era of Me Too, we can think about like what does it mean in a private sector workplace when uh, you have individual workers who are challenging some injustice that's been done yeah. to them in the workplace, and then you have you know a federal body that's basically saying like your your boss has the right to gag you. Right. So um, yeah. So all these things, you know, if, if anyone has any ideas on how to rewrite the National Labor Relations Act, you know, or it could use write something else. Or write something else. Indeed, um, no reason we need to be constrained by a law that was written in 1935. But mm-hmm. so far, yeah. So, tech workers, media workers, um, are a sort of interconnected couple of fields where we've seen some organizing. Um, I'm super excited because it means, like, Michelle and I aren't, you know, two of the only labor journalists out there anymore. Now you've got a whole bunch of journalists who've gone through union fights and, like, no labor radicalized. Yeah, no, not only they've been radicalized, but they've been, like, you know what it means to, like, have a right to work fight when you've sure. actually fought your boss trying to put it in your contract, right? Yes. You know what this means now. Um, it's great. I love it. There's like a labor awakening among right. journalists. And I think um, some of the earlier organizing, you know, in Gawker and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it started out from journals that were um, sort of outlets that were more left-leaning, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, and, and so through their reporting on these issues, I think, you know, there's sort of a feedback loop here mm-hmm. where exactly. reporters yeah. themselves got sort of more charged politically. Right. Reporters get aware of things and then they write about it and then they also organize about it. And then the organizing teaches people in the workplace who maybe were less aware of those issues more about them. Right. Um, um, and it, yeah, I think it's I think it's wonderful. I was just talking to a friend who works at the New Republic who just ratified their contract. Um, what else? What, what are some of the more recent ones? There is a Buzz union drive at Hearst. Okay. Yeah, we had walkouts at BuzzFeed mm. and Vox Media this summer. Um, you know, that not only are, are workers unionizing, but they're they're taking action. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really impressive. Then, of course, you saw like the downside of it with Deadspin, where the new owners tried to muzzle reporters' political coverage, and then fortunately they ended up just all quitting in protest right. and Deadspin is now basically dead. Right. And that too was a labor action essentially. It was right? a labor action. I I I you know, I I wish we had more 
successful labor actions that didn't and, like, quitting and protest <laughs> but like it is worth noting that like yeah that was an incredibly difficult choice for people right. to make but also it was an incredibly public fight right mm-hmm. and so the sort of the public shame that was like sort of poured upon um deadspin i think was um you know was was pretty impressive in the sense that mm-hmm. you just had the journalists themselves who were basically saying like you know it wasn't even a traditional sort of you know bread and butter issue. It was about their sort of journalistic integrity, Mm -hmm, right? And their freedom to write what they wanted. Yeah. And I think that that's a really big issue in a lot of these places. Like, for instance, the tech workers, for a lot of tech workers, they're doing pretty well economically, right? If you're a programmer at Google, you're probably making decent money. Um, But the thing that that started a lot of the tech worker organizing was Trump. Yes. And an understanding of their political power as workers to stop work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really, really interesting point we've talked about before on the show, I'm sure we'll talk about it again, um, that most of the union fights that we talk about, you know, people will sort of say, oh, you got to go back to bread and butter issues. You got to, you know, organize the working class by talking about your pocketbooks and blah, blah, blah. And like, it is true that it is, as Bill Clinton said, the economy is stupid. But like, when you see the big union successes, it's often about something that isn't just money. Like the thing I keep thinking about with the West Virginia teachers being the Fitbits, right? Yes. That like dignity on the workplace or Which you is know a, political also a tech power, issue, right? Right. That these are yeah, these, and these are all wrapped up together, right? Issues of autonomy, mm-hmm. issues of power, um, issues of surveillance. Right. Yeah, and I, I so I think it's great to see this organizing, even if you were also seeing workers getting fired from places right. like Google for their organizing. And some of the union fights, for instance, at Harvard University, the mm-hmm. graduate workers strike, I mean, they're not just striking about wages and benefits, but right. they're also striking about needing a sexual harassment policy yeah. that actually serves people's needs. And so in the era of Me Too, you know, we're actually, it's like, sort of like, here's where Me Too and the labor movement meet. It's um, almost like unions are good. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to, to watch that stuff happen, right? To, to see the, the way these consciousnesses change yeah. Um, and, you know, the way that the working class has changed now, right? It, it's, um, it's now I'm going to step on my own arg for later. But, you know, the, the working class is not a stagnant entity. Um, it is a thing that is always in formation. Right. And what we're seeing now with these overlapping organizing drives in places that are like media and tech that have a lot of interaction that are all extremely online Um you see that sort of class composition happening, mm-hmm. and I really think it's fascinating. Yeah, and um, in terms of tech worker identity, I think it's a little bit like some of the digital media outlets that we've seen mm-hmm. in the sense that yeah. um, they started out, you know, these companies all started out as like scrappy startups in the early aughts, and people mm-hmm. were like, oh, we're all in it together, right? Like, you know, we, there's no workplace hierarchy. Everything's horizontal right, exactly. and transparent here. We're but a now, family. Yeah, but now uh, people realize that Google is like this massive company, like yeah. with t- tens of thousands of employees worldwide. Amazon is this like retail behemoth that has both a yeah. huge white collar workforce and a huge warehouse workforce, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are not just, you know, um, scrappy startups oh, anymore. Oh, and we should give a shout out to those Amazon warehouse workers. Yes. The, uh, the, you know, particularly the Somali warehouse workers in Minneapolis with the Awood Center who yeah. just keep beating Amazon. Right. Like, and showing the rest of the world this year, done. right? Yeah. Like, actually, I think that might be my favorite labor story of the year is right. this small group of my if immigrant workers of refugees really who you know fought amazon and won and again that started with a fight over dignity right it right. started over the ability to pray yeah and that i think we should really right. not discount when people sort of say that you shouldn't bring identity issues into the workplace right. um 
it's not nothing right. that those are the workers who beat Amazon the first time. And it also shows sort of the intersection between community organizing and workplace organizing, mm-hmm. right? Which is the sense that you can't really separate these two, yes. especially when you have, you know, Amazon is just like maybe the one major employer that of that size and mm-hmm. scope in the yeah. in this in this community. And so when you have whole communities that are relying on a single company, right? That company yeah. really gets to dictate a lot about their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you know when I spoke to um, the, the you know, the folks who are organizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're basically saying, you know, this is, I mean, we take our jobs home with us in the evening when we yeah. are completely stressed out, when we can't mm-hmm. sleep at night, right? When we're in chronic pain, yeah. right? And so um, for Amazon workers everywhere, I mean, that's what you hear people saying, basically, yeah. that that Amazon, um, it's become, it's not just a place where you sort of clock in and clock out anymore, right? right? It's becoming this kind of like behemoth that's kind of present in everyone's lives. Yeah, I mean, and it wants to be present in, in your doorbell and yeah. in your yeah. house with right. Alexa and all of right. these things. And I think that's sort of where you see this interesting convergence between like consumer awareness and work, worker mm-hmm. awareness. Yeah. So, I mean, Amazon has gotten backlash from both the, the, uh, the yeah. consuming public yeah. as well as the working public. And you should give a shout out to our, our the folks at Athena, the new yes. broad-based anti-Amazon coalition, right? right. Which is right. a coalition of unions and community organizations right. um, fighting Amazon's power in all sorts of ways. Right. And uh, in the sense that Amazon is this inescapable force in all of our lives, like it's hard for us to avoid shopping <laughs> on it, and it's hard for, for many of us to avoid working there. So, um, you know, the the issue is like, how do we make it better from the inside out and sort of um, sort of nationalize it? Right. Exactly. Well, um, anyway, yeah. Um, my wish list aside. So, speaking of tech, Uber. Yes. Um, and we should also hit WeWork because um, the 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 sort of meltdown of these quote-unquote tech companies that really are not tech companies. They're a, a driving service and a real estate company. That are attached to an um, app. That, right, that are attached sort of to an app and attached sort of to weird tech money. Um, yeah, the, the, the meltdown of these pre- and post-IPO, or in WeWorks, I guess the IPO was canceled, um, it, it shows us some value. things, right? <laughs> it also shows us the impending collapse of the economy again. Not that I don't say I didn't warn you, kids. Um, but yeah, I mean Uber, right? I mean this for and again, it's this idea like for a while these Silicon Valley companies they sort of had a halo over them, right? People mm-hmm. thought they were the way oh, of yeah, the future, yeah. and like these tech bros who are running everything, right? These like, like thirty-something wow, so white cool. guys just yeah. like get money handed to them, right? And now sort of the mask is slipping, I would say. The mask is definitely um, slipping. And uh, of course, Uber, you know, we don't know if the collapse of Uber's IPO is necessarily related to the work place strike or workplace I don't know the, the, yeah. the vehicle well, strikes that happened the drivers um, driver strikes right the driver, driver strikes actions, but yeah. but we did see you know uh, workers I mean it obviously it wasn't the majority of Uber workers are out there who are taking action but a number of them did and it was in cities um, across the country and um, for the first I mean we, we we've known about this for a long time in New York because we had the New York Taxi Workers Alliance but we right. saw workers in LA right um, engaging in similar actions and um, exactly. and Uber drivers who are technically self-employed right um, right um, you know, a number of the workers that we've been talking about today have, are technically not considered employees in right. many cases. So, right. um, you know, these Uber drivers, um, they're saying, look, look, you know, uh, we're not really our own boss here, right? Yeah. Like, we may be tethered to the app and we may be driving our own cars, but really, like, this app um, is basically, like, sort of running our lives at this point. And so, 
when their wages start dropping, I think people are realizing sort of the power that this company has and sort of the lack of transparency, mm-hmm. um, which is a real, uh, which is a real thing that, you know, as more workers yeah. are, are, yeah. are becoming involved with technology, mm-hmm. sort of the, the opacity of the way Silicon Valley and all these technologies yeah. work. Is yeah, really and the, the Uber organizing in London, in the UK, with uh, the independent workers Great Britain, um, they've been suing for the Uber drivers' access to their data, which yeah. I think is going to be a front that we'll see a lot more action on in the the future, right. right, is like these companies are, are as um, our, former, our previous guest Callum Kant said, they operate like a black box, right? Mm-hmm. All the information goes in and that's what the company really controls, whether right. it's WeWork and which knows how many people are renting its weird spaces to um, work in or Uber, which knows where you go and how often you do it. And, and has those like ratings for drivers. Yeah, that are ratings for drivers. And, yeah. Um, right. It's it's such a you know yeah. So control over that data is the yeah. really interesting point because yeah. right. Which is a thing with um, with the Amazon workers as well. They're mm-hmm. constantly oh, surveilled. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. every single move, like every bathroom break is tracked. Yeah, they're, they're little. They have yeah. got, like the little wrist gadget right, that tracks right, you going right. around. And so I mean, or you know, and this is also true of whatever. I was on a panel this um, September in Brighton in the UK at the Labour Party conference with a postal worker who was telling us about the app that they have to use as, as postal workers in the UK that has like a yellow dot on it that like if you're it's on your little screen right and like if you stay in one place for too long the yellow dot starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's like look you're a postal worker like sometimes you stop to talk to people sometimes people ask pee, you for directions for God's sakes. Yes. right yeah it's it's um UPS yeah. workers that mm-hmm. they're also like they have those like biometric yeah. trackers that like yeah. basically like you know if you pause for too long if you like maneuver yeah. excessively in your seat you're like mm-hmm. in danger of getting a violation yeah so. i mean we talk a lot about automation and like the fear that you know all the jobs are going to be automated away but the other thing that's happening is is people are being treated more and more like robots right, right? It's not and robots replacing us necessarily. It's all of us becoming <laughs> robots in a We're sense. both. Yeah. But, you know, and again, if, if you can standardize the job down to something easily trackable, it is therefore probably easier to create a robot to do it, um, which, of course, is Uber's ultimate goal if it can survive long enough to automate all the drivers away. Right. Um, because Uber is certainly into driverless cars. Yes. Right. Um, which is terrible because what we really need is trains. Not that I wasn't talking about trains on this episode, too. <laughs> right. But so uh, speaking of cars and yes. whatever, I'm trying to come up with a segue, segue here, guys. Yes. Segue. Right. Um, big to auto. climate change. Oh, I thought I was going to say big auto. But well, we, we, we can do. Okay. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll segue <laughs> okay. that way, too. Wow. We've we um, got a double segue. We're good. This time. We're good yeah. at this, guys. We're good at this. Um, so, yeah, climate change. Okay. Um, is terrifying. Boris Johnson getting elected in the UK just means like we're all doomed a little bit faster. Um, so hey, right. thanks for that, guys. But um, now we have the Green New Deal here in the US, which we, well, may we, or may not. Well, yeah, we ha- may we, or may ha- not. We had a proposals for a Green New Deal in a lot of places. Right. We do not have a Green New Deal. Yes. That is the problem. I think in Europe they call it the New Green Deal, which is um, <laughs> no, they still call it the Green New Deal okay. or the Green Industrial Revolution okay. was the proposal right. coming yes. from the Labour Party. That's British um, yeah, but so. Um, there's been some movement in the yeah. labor movement. It was a big deal in the UK, for instance, that the big unions got on board with the Green New Deal proposal um, with the Labor Party, which eh, I'll just cry over here in the corner right. for a little while. Um, the LA Fed. Yes. Talked, yeah. um, SEIU also endor- broadly um, yeah. endorsed the principles of the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And we've even seen, like, I mean, there was a conference um, about sort of how 
what the role of the labor movement was mm-hmm. with the Green New Deal, and yeah. I think even even the mine workers, you know, mm-hmm. came to that, and they they um, they talked. Yeah. I mean, they talked very seriously about like what is the future of our industry and what yeah. role do workers have? And I think you know this concept of like the just transition—it's sort of like this like buzzword that everyone keeps throwing yeah, around. It's not a new buzzword either. Right. We've been hearing just transition for right. decades. But I think now right? we're sort of at the point where and it's we're never think- happened. Right, and we're thinking about like how to like actually concretize that theory of like you know yes of mm-hmm. course workers are the most directly impacted and how do we how do we um, transform our economy in a way that doesn't hurt the people who have like the least power in the situation right yeah. um, so I, I don't know if we have like a clear idea of what that is but I think that increasingly I mean um, workers are actually on the front line of the climate crisis and I think that's kind of what's also stirring people to action like um, I'm, I'm sort of this overlaps with my arg for today but um, we <laughs> talked, you know in Australia I mean we had dock workers who are basically like mm-hmm. Um, calling like having a mass sick out on the job because they couldn't breathe right because yeah. of the wildfires and so I mean God have you seen those pictures from Australia right now yeah. they're really terrifying um, solidarity to any of our listeners who are there it really looks scary yeah and so we have but now like when your entire country is on fire right then we start thinking about like not just the dock workers like the farm workers right mm-hmm. I mean who so who is most directly affected oh, by I this I mean the LA wildfires where you know there were horrifying articles about domestic workers still showing up to work yeah. because they you know yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> in my, fa- right. homes that the you know the rich owners had evacuated from, right, but people right. are going. I guess I should still go yeah. to work. Right. And can't get fired. And it just shows like how little regard there is for the humanity of the workers who are there because they're basically seen as like part of the part of the collateral damage of these yeah. fires, right? Yeah. And so I mean, you even saw that in like um, in wine country, right? Mm-hmm. The, the people who pick our grapes for our fancy wine, right? They're actual people, right? So they need a place yeah. to go during the fire as well. So um, so yeah, I guess um, I I don't you know we don't know where the Green New Deal will go, but I think that um, uh, workers are increasingly It's engaged, hopeful, right? right? That, and they're that, engaging yeah. with the concept as like kind of an existential crisis for them as well, mm-hmm. so yeah. it's not just like a theoretical thing. Yeah. So let me see if I can come up with a good segue here. So the GM strike did not really take up the climate change question that right. much. But, um, our, but our friend Sean Crawford did. Sean, no, and, and I think that there are plenty of workers in the UAW who are thinking about this. Um, it was an interesting point, right, that like um, I think about the workers at Lordstown. Yes, I'm always thinking about the workers at Lordstown. Hi, Chucky. Um, that, you know, the the plant is being sold to a company that wants to make electric trucks. And one of the goals for GM, which is going to be like sort of a partner in that new venture, as I understand it, um, is to make sure that the new jobs making the environmentally friendly vehicles will be less good jobs, right? And that's when we're talking about the just transition, that is the question, right? That like they want to ensure that the jobs of the future are not the jobs of the past where you actually had a stable workforce making a stable amount of money with stable benefits that could retire at some point on an actual pension. They want to make sure that the new jobs are precarious and make less money and involve fewer fewer workers and like – Involving fewer workers is another subject, but right. like that the workers who are doing them do not have security or good conditions. Right. And this was a fight I that... I.e. Tesla. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. Um, the, and so thinking about this, you know, when we were looking at, at what didn't go right with the GM strike, I mean, what did go right, we should say, is that like thousands and thousands of workers around the country went on a militant strike for weeks and weeks and were willing to keep fighting. Right. And even, they were even when fighting. Brass called them back. Right? Yeah. So. And they were willing to fight 
for the conditions of future workers, right? They're trying to fight for better conditions for the people to be hired in the future. Um, that's real solidarity. And I am incredibly impressed with everybody who is part of that strike. And I just, yeah, I don't want to ever say that like that was not, you know, Incredible success. Show. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, it, re- it reminded people what this looks like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the ending deal was disappointing yeah. to a lot of those workers, to some of the workers we talked to, to many of the workers that I met on the picket lines. Right. Um, and that, you know, that raises a lot of questions, like I mentioned earlier, about the leadership of the UAW and the corruption scandal. Right. Um, but it also raises questions about, you know, what, what power do you have when the company wants to shut down the plant? And also, I think um, what Sean Crawford Crawford was telling us about how he felt about his union was that he really believed in his fellow members, Mm -hmm. right? And so he genuinely believed in sort of the the union, the workers as sort of the future of the union, right? And so when there is a rift created between the leadership and its agenda and the workers themselves, then that, you know, will hopefully create some sort of soul searching. Um, Yeah. um, yeah. But now we've seen at least a number of high profile <laughs> high profile oustings of uh, of the current union leadership. Yeah, so and and it is that. it is as I said earlier hopeful that, you know, people are are pushing for a democratic reforms to the union um, in general, right? The workers are the union. The union yeah. is not the third party thing. The number one thing that the boss will tell you if you try to form a union is that you don't need some third party to come in here and mediate between you and us. And the number one way to defeat that argument is to show that the workers are the union. Right. Um, and this is an existential crisis for the UAW as well because yeah, I mean we've absolutely. seen they've repeatedly failed to organize factories in the south mm-hmm. and we and we wonder why right when stuff like this happens. So. I mean, yeah, it's it's an ongoing question that right that that you know the big unions in this country sort of accepted managed decline for a while and then it stopped being a manageable managed decline <laughs> and it right. became something else. Um, you know, we're at something like 6% private sector union density in this country. It's a fucking tragedy. And yeah, so to think about the future of unions um, is to think about the future of work and workers' power yeah. and, and what all of that is going to look like. And, and I think the fact that like the public sector, in terms of unionization, has kind of eclipsed the private sector mm-hmm. is also creating sort of a new um, sort of front line for the labor movement in the yeah, sense that yeah, you absolutely. have a lot of civil servants who, I mean, for them, like there's more at stake in yeah. their job than just, you know, their paycheck, right, and their pension. Those are big deals, but right, but the yeah. public sector as a workforce really embodies something different to all yeah. of us as citizens, right? Yeah. And we haven't figured out how to automate teachers yet. Right. Um, sweet segue once again. Right. And but also, you know, home care <laughs> workers, right? Another huge yeah. um, service industry. Yeah. No, um, they are government one. employees, technically. Well, right. You know, sort the, of. The, right. But uh, but in the sense they're that they're partial you know, public employees, right. according to Samuel right, Alito, right. which but, is now unfortunately uh, case law. Right. Um, thanks, <laughs> but the Supreme Court. But their um, but their uh, connection, right, to uh, to the um, to both, I guess, private sector and public sector unions, um, for the most part, I mean, is sort of um, again, it's that intersection of like. You know, what yeah. do we do when we have private companies um, sort of uh, taking over, right, really roles that used to be filled by the state? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, what is, and what is the role of sort of rank-and-file workers in sort of determining how, yeah. how to create sort of a more just workplace as mm-hmm. well as a more just social service system? Yeah, and when you think about um, when the workplace is someone's home, right, it's, yeah. a, it's a, 
And this is a growing situation for many of us, right? My workplace is also my home, although that is me sitting at a desk at my computer. It is not me taking care of somebody at the moment anyway. Um, yeah. All right. So to wrap up with something that is positive, this year was bookended with big-ass teacher strikes. Yes. Um, so I started out the year in Los Angeles covering the L.A. teachers' strike. Uh, United Teachers Los Angeles um, kicked the crap out of the privatizers. Yeah. And it was awesome. Um, and I still sort of, when I'm having a bad day, will like call up the memory of sort of being at a march with like 40,000 teachers and allies through downtown Los Angeles in the rain. Because, of course, it never rains in Los Angeles except when there's a teacher strike on. Um, and, yeah, and one things like, you know, demands over green spaces on campus and community schools and ethnic studies curricula and smaller class sizes. Obviously, everybody wants to talk about smaller class sizes. And also school nurses, right? Stuff like right, that. Right, restorative justice practices. I mean, it was a really big, broad spread of wins in L.A. And I think we have seen the, the teachers' unions – um, growing up in the last several years, right? And understanding the role that they play in the community, that they can fight for things like fair housing, which was an issue in LA as well as in Chicago, um, that the amount of power that public sector workers have to make demands on behalf of the entire working class is something that, you know, we, we haven't We've only begun to scratch the surface of, I think. With ideas like bargaining for the common good. Right, exactly. That this is this is a place where, you know, in an LA you saw the community, community organizations really go to bat for the teachers, holding actions, doing civil disobedience that the teachers, you know, that the union would be penalized for under law, but that community groups could do. Um yeah, it's it was really impressive, and, and it's. I thought that in both. I mean, um, yeah. I thought it was sort of a nice. I mean, these strikes this year kind of were bookending a wave, a two-year sort of wave of mm-hmm. strikes, right? And yeah. it started out with, you know, teachers in West Virginia that didn't even have the right to strike, technically yeah. speaking, right? Yeah. And so now we see teachers in major cities also right. sort of probably thinking to themselves, well, if West Virginia teachers can raise hell, yeah, then certainly well, and, we and can. right, and you you sort of have this thing that started with the Chicago teachers and then moved around the country in terms of reform caucuses, but we didn't have that many major strikes in that space of time until suddenly everything popped off in 2018. And yeah, but so sort of with the LA strike, you you returned to that sort of deeply rooted reform movement within the union that had again grown out of the financial crisis, grown out of, you know, austerity budget cuts, layoffs, all of that. Um, took power within the union, remade the union, invested in an organizing department, invested in community relations, invested in building, uh, particularly in Los Angeles, because the school district is huge. It's like 900 and something square miles. Um, Invested in, right, in figuring out how to actually be in communication with members across that district so that the members, you know, so that you could maintain a massive strike for a week in a district where, you know, it takes three hours to drive from one end of the district to the other. Um, And I timed it because I did it. Um, (laughs) And also to get the entire community on board with you, to get solidarity from students as well as from parents. And so that was just, yeah, that was amazing. Um, It was amazing to see. I 
Yeah, I, I, I was really happy to be there. And then I'm just have we to keep playing that episode of Belabored over and over I know, again. And I know, constantly you know, for the memories. For the memories. But then we ended the year, sort of. It's not quite over yet, but right. you know, pretty close to ending the year with the Chicago teachers going back right. out on strike again. Right. So Which you know, course talk is, about is bookending an even larger cycle. Right. Like talk about like the decade, years, right? Yeah. Like the CTU, like Core took power in the CTU in 2010. Right. It is literally a decade that they have been fighting to fix the union to fix the city of Chicago to um kick the butts of successive mayors of Chicago right and and of course because yeah. like the, t- the 2012 strike I think is sort of sealed in people's memory because it was seen as like a, a great success right yeah it was but a of huge course, success the fact that they went on and strike again also shows that you know this um they need to sort of they need to constantly build on the gains that, that were more not only you need to constantly build on the gains but like you know right after they had the successful strike Rahm Emanuel turned around and closed 49 schools right so, you know, it's, it's these are so, still battles. They're right. not sort of decisive victories so for all time. Two steps forward, one step back. Kind or, of or, or three yeah, steps sometimes. Back. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's right. It's really hard. Um, and the, the teachers in West Virginia and other places have certainly felt that, too. Um, that crackdown that comes when you win, when you build some power. Um, I think it's really, really important now. Um, I'm just back from London and, you know, obviously it's incredibly depressing to see Boris Johnson win, to see the Labor Party beaten in its old traditional, you know, strongholds. But we do have to remember that, like, the movement doesn't go in just one steady, long, you know, sorry, Martin Luther King arc that just bends in one direction. It goes up and down. It has waves. We have successes. We have defeats. We learn from them, hopefully, with a minimum of eating each other. Um, and, and right, and yeah. organizing is basically like a 24-7, 365 days a year kind of thing. Well, you should is, all sleep. Right. Sleeping is important. Right, well. But, yeah, yeah the, right, the, 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 the Struggle was going to go on. It will go on when you have your successful strike. It will go on when you have a less successful strike. Even when your candidate loses. When your candidates lose. When you, um, yeah. And so the the organizing, I think, you know, as we go into a presidential election year, which is the worst thing in the world as far as I'm concerned as a journalist, um, we always have to fight to get anything talked about other than elections. Right. And we didn't mention what's going on in Washington right now once in this entire conversation. So thank yeah, you. good. Um, right. We, we, we sort of have to fight even more now because like the Trump news cycle is just this like demon beast that right. needs slaying. And Trump, of course, the, like with his faux populist sort of uh, grandstanding on how this is the greatest economy ever. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is I mean, these are ways that sort of we've seen demagoguery try to sort of like. Um, kind of hijack sort of this language of populism. And so I think that the labor struggles that we've seen over the past year are sort of a a very good counterpoint to that, right? Um, And so there's constantly this sort of, uh, you know, even if we can't get our voices heard in Washington, there are people, there are increasing ways that 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 workers are finding their voice um, in the broader society. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that you can count on us for, at least at Belabored, is that we will talk about things that are not just the damn election. (laughs) <laughs> that is what we're here for. Yes. Thank you for listening. Um, it hasn't quite been a decade, but it's been a while. Right. It's been well, a lot of this decade that yes. we've been doing this. Yeah. Well, you've been doing it longer than, than I have. Yeah, so. like a year yeah. longer, though. Right, right. You've been here for most of yes, it. Yes. <laughs> so. we, well, we thank all of our loyal listeners. I know. If, if any of you have been here for as long as this podcast I know. has been in Have you I'm all sure. listened to? Episode one was, in fact, Karen Lewis, too, from the CTU. Right. So, um, yeah, we are. It's all coming full circle, guys.
Oh, God. Uh- <laughs> right. And so I, I was just thinking that by the time we get to do the year-end roundup in 2020, we'll either be, like, clinically depressed or jumping for joy or something else. So we'll, I, Who yeah, knows so who what knows? we will be at this right. time next year, guys. Yeah. But I can tell you one thing is that we will still have to fight yes. no matter what. Yep. The podcast goes on. The podcast continues. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. And my pick for this episode is, instead of choking on smoke, Sydney workers are walking off the job by Zacharias Zumer in Jacobin. So if you've been paying attention to the news outside of Washington, you might have caught wind of reports from Australia about basically the entire country exploding into a giant ball of flame. Wildfires have been engulfing much of the country, and because it's summer there, while it's winter here, Australians have been enduring record temperatures. Wildfires in New South Wales and Queensland have engulfed almost 7 million acres by this point, and the unusually intense fire season and the heat waves have prompted more protests around climate change, and the pressure is ramping up on the government due to its uh, consistent lack of decisive action on climate change up to this point. Uh, Zoomer looks at what the implications of these ongoing disasters are for workers, because for them, climate change is increasingly no longer an abstract problem to be dealt with in the future. It's the here and now. He starts with dock workers in Sydney, who have a long history of militancy and uh, have served as a kind of weather vane for industrial change and labor upheaval. When the air quality got intolerable due to the bushfires, the Warfies took action. Quote, Warfies had been suffering eye and throat irritation for several days before they ceased working. And the Maritime Union of Australia organizer Shane Resides says they were beginning to rotate shifts more often and take more frequent breaks. On Thursday, December 5th, air quality sank even lower and westerly winds pushed smoke over the portside eastern suburbs. And with terminal management only providing face masks that worker health and safety reps and experts deemed ineffective, the Warfies refused to unload ships, unquote. So in the era of the Green New Deal, many environmental groups are struggling to forge an alliance with labor unions, trying to make the case that renewables and not fossil fuels will be the future of the economy and workers will benefit from this societal transformation. But what the dock workers did speaks to a much more visceral connection between the environmental crisis and the labor crisis. That The climate is not just an environmental concept, but it is a huge part of their working conditions as well. There was broad recognition that workers' health was on the line. The Maritime Mining, Construction, Forestry, and Energy Workers Union took action, and Zuma writes, quote, many branches told their members to put their health first and promised to support any members who refused to work. As the toxicity of the air skyrocketed, thousands of trade workers and apprentices stopped work, unquote. So due to the legal restrictions that are placed on strikes in many of these industries, the work stoppages were uh, often not official strikes, but actions taken in the name of healthy, health and safety. But the sense of militancy surfaced in the workers' justification for their actions. Deputy MUA branch secretary Paul Keating warned, quote, the MUA will call out every boss, every stevedore company that thinks they're going to put profit ahead of our members' safety. We will wage campaigns on them until we deliver in regard to our members' right to work in safety, unquote. And unlike other kinds of labor disputes about so-called bread and butter issues, environmental health issues facing the workforce are also a major crisis for the whole industry because they could be potentially devastating to the entire supply chain, especially when your workers are fainting and dropping dead on the job. 
Perhaps the sector where this existential crisis bears out most shockingly is agriculture. Farm workers everywhere are the most intensely exposed to the elements every day, often with inadequate protective gear, and the punishing heat they have to endure will intensify to often unsustainable levels in the coming years. They also face the acute harms of pesticide pollution, as well as abusive treatment by employers more generally. And we see the same issues unfolding here with farm workers in the U.S. on huge industrial farms. Occupational Safety and Health Administration officials have over the years failed to heed environmental and labor groups' demand for new regulations on heat exposure. And as a result, about 130 million workers who are vulnerable to suffering from heat-related illness or even death are basically left without provisions for rest breaks, access to water, and safety training. Sumer quotes Godfrey Mose, an executive director at the United Workers Union, which represents many workers in informal and precarious sectors. Quote, I don't think it's as far away as anyone would think from the outside. Aged care workers have to watch the people they care for die in heat waves. Manufacturing workers often work in untemperature controlled conditions, and so do logistics workers. If the UWU consciously organizes workers as people who shouldn't put up with unsafe working conditions, then it won't just be farm workers, it'll be manufacturing workers, aged care workers, and early childhood educators, unquote. Farm workers, like dock workers and home health aides, etc., are on the front lines of this climate crisis, and the environmental movement will increasingly be looking to these workers not just as recruits for their movement, but as teachers and as leaders, because ultimately they have the most at stake in creating a just transition, and they know exactly how hard it is to change an industry in which workers have systematically had their power stripped from them by corporations. The power that will be needed to execute such a transformation will come from the grassroots, in our communities, and in our workforces. And if we can get the politics right in the workplace and in our legislative chambers, then that labor power can become a renewable resource. In the wake of the UK election results, the Labour Party is undergoing a lot of soul-searching and an equal amount of finger-pointing. For many, the loss of seats in Labour's traditional strongholds and the manufacturing and mining belts is a sign that the party has turned away from the working class. In this kind of argument, it is, of course, a universally white and male working class easily turned off by too much love for the EU and too many immigrants. Don Foster wrote an important corrective to this simplistic discourse that pretends to class consciousness at Huck magazine titled The Great Myth of the British Working Class, a Flat Cap Fallacy. I love that. Um, she writes, quote, almost anyone who had an issue with labor and Corbyn has decided that their precise issue was the sole problem that caused the election to be lost. One of the loudest contingents are those saying the issue is class. So much of the United Kingdom is beset by class issues. No matter what happens, this will likely be right. But inevitably, the discussion on class and its definition is truncated, misapplied, or deliberately narrowed and used to reflect specific bigotries and interests. Indeed, the failings of class politics for decades have not been fixed, unfortunately, by a few years of left leadership of the Labour Party, and the failures of many people's class analyses are on ready display right now. Foster continues, quote, Any narrative on class that pretends there is an easy answer should be entirely ignored. Doing so seeks to pretend the working class is entirely white and male, and that the diversity of the working class is either a myth or exclusively confined to large metropolitan areas. Post-election, the narrative has sought to pretend not just that working class people predominantly live in the north of England rather than everywhere, but that yet again, class is nothing more than a series of stereotypes. Young people are dismissed as uniformly middle class and obsessed with avocados and coffee, while older people live in identicate towns in the north of England and are concerned with Brexit, whippets, and racism. End quote. And whippets, that means the dog, not the thing you do when you huff whipped cream. Sorry, I'm dating myself Child here. of the 80s. Child of the 80s, sorry. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> Finally, she notes, quote, treating the working class as homogenous, white, and uniquely motivated by very specific political ideologies is unutterably foolish. Veering towards a more racist view, as many blue labor types suggest, is politically stupid, but more important, morally wrong. There are far more typologies of working class people than middle class people, and a party that wins an election mustn't alienate one group at the expense of another. What that means is fighting locally, not by insisting labor activists can create impeccable social services out of nothing, but by realizing that winning an election is a long-term project. It means making sure that the asset-poor but educated young working class aren't ignored as they were in Blair's day. It means ensuring the party isn't overtaken by right-wing wreckers seeking to launder their bigotry with the language of socialism. It means encouraging more people on the left to stand as counselors so they can communicate just how badly local services and funding have been slashed. End quote. I realize I just read half her article to you, but it's just really fun to read out loud. These are good sentences to say. I'm enjoying it. Thank you, Dawn. Um, the discourse in the UK since the election has mirrored in many ways the discourse in the U.S. since Trump's victory. The working class is treated as a set of identity categories, flat caps, or, you know, make America great again baseball caps. This misses entirely, as I wrote at The Progressive this week, the recomposition of the working class with the deindustrialization of former manufacturing and mining strongholds, the shift to service work, zero hours contracts, precarity, the downward mobility of a college degree, and the rise of student debt. The new working class is centered in cities not because it's a metropolitan elite obsessed with frothy coffee, but because that's where the jobs are. Whether that means driving for Uber, serving those frothy coffees that the class posturers like to mock, or working in hospitals and schools in the crumbling public sector. To pretend that there is one working class that is somehow more authentic is an ahistorical view of the thing that confuses a set of cultural preferences for power, and it homogenizes regions that have never been and are now less so than ever. Don't do it. Thanks. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on beating right-wing politicians on the picket line and hopefully also someday at the ballot box, on graduate student strikes, on union democracy, and the latest ways that your boss is trying to take away your rights. Thank you, as always, to Dissent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening for... Three, three quarters yeah. of this decade or something like that decade, yeah. um, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes shared us with your friends promote us on Twitter Facebook or whatever social media oh, you're Lord, on these days tote bags. exactly we can get a sweet tote bag if you donate just $5 a month to keep us going, we really appreciate it. Um, you can get some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. And you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a striking graduate worker or teacher, dock worker fighting climate crisis, or a tech worker or flight attendant, or anything you want. You can always tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We will be back after the holidays in the new year. Solidarity. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. 